I'm Morgan. I'm Ty. And this is Science, Science on the Side. Welcome. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to our first episode of our second season. Um, just as a little side note here, I think from here on out, we've decided we're going to just do episode numbers rather than seasons. We were super thrilled to get through 10 episodes in our first little stint, but from here on out, we're just going to go off episode numbers. So Yeah, we're trying to rack them up. So this is episode 11 now, officially. And we're super pumped that today we have a kind of a celebrity here yeah, with us. Yeah, special our, guest. Our own special uh, Utah um, guest here with us, Nels Eldy. Mm. Nels, welcome. Thank you, Morgan. Thank you, Ty. Really fun to be here. I think yeah. uh, celebrity is being generous, <laughs> I would say, but in science podcasting, you know, I'll take yeah. it. It's a, very, yeah, it's a yeah. small crew. Yeah. Nels Eldy is a professor here at University of Utah in the Department of Genetics, and he um, studies evolution. And um, he's also a science podcaster. He is. A uh, host of a very successful uh, podcast, which is part of a bigger series called This Week In, and he's on This Week in Evolution. And a wonderful podcast really delves into scientific topics and evolution and, and papers, and he's a great science communicator that way, and uh, we're just thrilled to have him here with us. Yeah, totally. So um, we're going to talk a lot about him today, kind of focus on <laughs> him and his story and and uh, you guys will see why we wanted to have him on here with us. But Nels, to start out, do you want to just tell us about just, a you know, your elevator pitch about your research? Yeah, I'm happy to. And thank you so much for having me on. So actually, first, I want to uh, throw a word of congrats to the two of you. So Morgan, I know, like, speaking of science communication, you are the current reigning champion of the three-minute thesis yes yeah i i went to the uh regional competition as well oh. so how did that go it went well um i i was about two weeks postpartum so mm. i was not necessarily on my a game but <laughs> it was a really awesome experience um it was all virtual so it was hosted in colorado but it was all on zoom um and there were just fantastic people that were a part of that incredible science communicators and i learned a lot from the experience it was awesome. how many people were there so they had 21 competitors in it from the western united states okay did you how'd you do <laughs> uh they i mean they had like a finals out of the top 21 and i think that they took six for the finals so i didn't make it to that but number seven lucky was, seven there you go totally lucky seven, seven. seven. <laughs> Pretty sweet. And I should say, so Morgan uh, is the one, the competition here, university-wide at the University of Utah. I was lucky enough to be one of the judges um, on the panel there. I can't say how I voted, but um, <laughs> um, no, it was really incredible, um, incredible crew of people here, not just in science, but across all the disciplines at the university. And Morgan, just um, her, her three-minute science three-minute thesis presentation just sung out. It was really, really well done. Congra Thank you. Yeah, congrats Thank on you. that. And then another congrats over here to Ty, who uh, recently defended his PhD thesis. Yeah. Are you, is that official now, Ty? Are you completely all... I mean, I'm still, you know, working with the thesis office, mm -hmm. but it's it's done. Okay, so you're about one-fifth through your <laughs> thesis. Then you've got four-fifths left to go. But that, Right. <laughs> Correcting <laughs> all those margins. Right. <laughs> exactly. That's not a small task, getting the editing right somehow oh, on the thesis. It's kind of archaic, I feel like, but yeah. it, it is what it is. Yeah, it's a mess. But um, I'm joking, of course. More than four-fifths done, probably all, like, just the last dotting, the, literally dotting the I's and crossing yeah. the T's. And then what's next for you, Ty? Uh, I am headed off to University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and I am um, doing a clinical postdoc in immunology. So I'll be working in the clinical lab, learning a lot of diagnostic assays, and training to be a director of um, serology, flow cytometry, and immunogenetics labs. Wow, really cool. That's not science on the side. That's like science. That's full-blown full science. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And so, how about you, Morgan? I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not. I'm, no, I'm asking please. too many questions. No, here. not at all. What's you're almost? Are you almost done? I'm getting close. Yeah. So I'm technically on maternity leave right now, but I'm shooting for this fall to graduate. And if it's not this fall, then it'll be in the spring. Very cool. Yeah, I've been in talks about a postdoc here mm -hmm. with a 
couple professors. Um, I am going to be stationed here in Utah no matter what, so I'm not going to be heading out anywhere. Um, I really have a passion for science education and science communication. And so I'm currently exploring options for uh, careers in that field. And if I do find something that sits well with me, then that's that's the direction I'm going to be going. Very cool. And congrats on the arrival of the little one. That's Thank you. Bit, yeah. even probably the biggest news so far. Yeah. Okay, I'll stop my um, podcast hosting and try to uh, <laughs> uh, do the reverse here. Um, so, yeah, I've been here at Utah. My lab is going to turn 11 years old um, you know, this summer. And as Morgan pointed out, we're an evolution lab, evolution and genetics, uh, with a, maybe uh, cell biology on the side, to borrow from your podcast yeah. title. Yeah. So really curious about, you know, when we think about all of the interactions between, say, viruses and hosts, where the host could be us and the virus might be SARS-2, or the just, you know, almost uh, an infinite number of interactions, especially as we stretch back in evolutionary time. The question is, what is that, like, what's the impact of that? What does that all mean for our, for some obvious outcomes, the evolution of the immune system, um, which is a pretty spectacularly diverse um, set of uh, biological tools that sort of come into play uh, anytime that we become infected, uh, all the way to how does this influence our own cell biology? So, you know, it turns out that a lot of the viruses, a lot of the bacteria have learned through trial and error, random mutation and selection, how to move around our cells, how to get in, how to replicate, and how to get out. And so that's, you know, those kind of interactions that could happen even over the course of hours, what is the impact on our evolution over the course of millions of years? And so maybe that's my elevator pitch for today. Cool. That's awesome. So I, I've been looking over a lot of your uh, research. You know, I, I saw um, this red queen hypothesis. Um, you've got some work with smallpox earlier on. Um, I want to know what your favorite discovery is that you have ever had. You've yeah. had some pretty incredible ones. So. Well, that just means I'm old. I've been around for a long time. <laughs> um, and to just point out really quickly, Morgan, so we're, yeah, we are interested in smallpox, although we use the vaccine strain, uh, vacciniovirus, right. a lot safer. Yes. Um, <laughs> since virus that causes smallpox is, you know, BSL-4 sort of spacesuit territory, and we're not putting on the spacesuits in my lab. Um, so my favorite discovery, so I've, I'm not dodging your question here, but I'll probably try to give a cute answer, which is uh, my favorite discovery is actually the one that we just made the most recently. Um, and so and I can, I'm happy to tell you about that. Yes, please. Um, but that sort of, you know, reflects actually, I think, you know, why I have stayed in science for a while now, for a few decades, is that there's, it's just constantly new, right? So the, you know, the thing we discovered 10 years ago, we're still excited about it, we're still working on it, but doesn't have that same, oh my goodness, this is just so, like, we've never seen this before. And so that's why I would answer that my favorite discovery is sort of the one that we just had. And so I'll tell you one, I mean, I could pick a few here. I feel really lucky to have a lab full of incredibly talented scientists that are kind of constantly renewing our discoveries, finding new things. And so, um, you know, it's kind of hard to pick, which is like a beautiful luxury. It's sort of an embarrassment of riches in a sense here. Um, but I'll tell you one. So it's um, we in the last couple of years we got kind of interested in zebrafish. So the model genetic system, a lot of developmental biologists use zebrafish. No one has really talked about the viruses or the other bugs that have interacted with. There's some great microbiome research um, from several labs, including Karen Gilman at the University of Oregon. But uh, little to no virology um, actually. People will inject zebrafish sometimes with virus, like some of the viruses that we see showing up uh, in the clinic in our, you know, that infect us. Um, but it was really sort of starting there. So we ended up making, and this is the work of Kirbala, who, by the way, is about to, he's a postdoc fellow in my lab, but he's about to open his own lab at the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub in oh, San Francisco. Awesome. Yeah. Mm. That's great. So, and this is just going to happen in June, so just a few weeks away. But so a couple of years ago, Kier decided to build a transgenic zebrafish. So again, because it's this great genetic model system, you have all these tools available. Can you tell us what a transgenic yeah. zebrafish is? We've got a lot of non-science That's listeners. great. Yeah. Thank you, Morgan. So transgenic, meaning that this is not, um, it's <laughs> this fish strain that we've developed doesn't come with its own natural genetics anymore. So we've used some tools to add a little snippet of DNA. Um, into the genome, so it's integrated in there. 
And this uh, little snippet of DNA contains a promoter region. So this is a region where you turn a gene on or off. You control its expression. And it's um, that promoter, we, we borrowed it from uh, the immune system, from a gene that turns on under when, when you're infected by viruses. And then what we did is we took that snippet of DNA, and then instead of having that immune gene that you might turn on in a regular infection, we put in a different gene that we borrowed from the, the jellyfish, a green fluorescent protein. This has been famous for you know decades now, is that we can borrow these genes from the wild, these great fluorescent proteins, use our microscopes to actually illuminate live biology in a new way. So anyway, so we made a transgenic fish that has an immune uh, promoter uh, hooked to GFP. And so the idea is if these transgenic fish uh, are infected with a virus, they'll actually turn on that green fluorescent protein. They'll literally grow, glow like a Christmas tree. Uh, and that happened. So we thought, you know, it's so cool. <laughs> yeah, it was really one of those sort of fun experiments where, you know, it takes a while to build it. And then we're like, well, hold on, where are we going to find these viruses? Do we have to go to pet stores? Do we go to the wild the, where you find zebrafish in, in nature? Or it turned out we just had to hatch a few of these things in our own research facility. They started glowing green. We sequenced a bunch of the RNA from those um, zebrafish, and they um, immediately kind of gave us this gift, which was a picornavirus of zebrafish, the first naturally described virus. How cool. Yeah. So since then, and here's my favorite, um, to, to finally answer uh, your question, my favorite recent discovery. That's pretty recent, but even more recent, we actually have now started going to pet shops and um, grabbing these zebrafish, then co-housing them with our really? transgenic guys to see if we can find more things out there. And it's working. So, That's so cool. Yeah, it's really fun. So we have, you know, we'll have some we have some scouts in our lab and another lab we're collaborating with, Jamie Gagnon, who's over at in the biology department here at Utah. And so, you know, we'll go out and we'll s kind of figure out which pet store has the most viruses in their zebrafish collection. And then I get a hint from someone. We'll say, go to Pet Shop 3, which is like the PetSmart by the REI <laughs> in, in, in Salt Lake, and I'll grab a dozen fish. We'll put them with our um, uh, lab fish. And what's really wild, here's my favorite recent discovery, is these pet store fish will look totally healthy. Like you're, these are not from the quarantine tank or anything like that. But we put them with our lab zebra fish, and these guys get sick. So they have sores on the, you know, their scales are all messed up. Wow. The, so there's something different, probably the genetics, uh, how they've been bred between the pet store fish and our lab fish that have been separated by, say, 50 or 60 years of time. And so at the same time we're discovering new viruses, we're also probably hinting or glimpsing at differences in the genetics of these lab fish versus the pet store fish. And so that's what we're chasing after How right now. How interesting. Yeah. So are, are the lab fish okay? They don't get sick, just the pet store fish? Well, no, so the other way both? around. Oh, the yeah, other way so around. the pet ah. shop fish are fine. They're in these sort of that makes a lot messy, more sense chaotic yeah. environments. Yeah, I might have said it backwards of a uh, geneticist always scrambling my language. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, no, the lab strains are the ones that are vulnerable. That, yeah. that makes more sense, but that's yeah. really interesting. But, um, you know, Morgan, as you're pointing out, we have I have a podcast that I co-host called This Week in Evolution. My friends would make fun of us because it's like this, like, oh, yeah, what, something big happened in evolution in the last <laughs> week or something like that. And the answer actually is yes. Like, there's, like, all of this stuff that can happen really quickly and in very species-specific or even strain-specific ways. And so I think, we, we're, you know, we're getting a little bit more comfortable with this when we look at SARS-2 and how fast this virus has moved, this exogenous virus has yeah. moved through our own population. This is happening right now. Some of the so-called sub-variants of the Omicron variant are just sort of perking through like entire populations in the course of like a couple of weeks, actually. And then we are kind of the lucky bearers of some of these genetic experiments, in a sense. We have pretty great immune systems. Um, we're sitting here two years into a pandemic yeah, and doing okay. Right. And so that's, you know, us and most of our species actually are doing that. And so that's sort of a reflection again of the evolution over a longer course of time. Very cool. I'm going to shift gears here a little bit and uh, I'm going to ask you a little bit more about you and your life. So uh, <laughs> my very first question is about uh, your award that you received recently, <laughs> the MacArthur Award, also known as the Genius Award. And, you know, I would think I would take full advantage of this if I ever got that award, which I won't. But 
you know, on your CV, on your resume, does it just say like genius as like the first, you know, the, the, the very first bullet point? <laughs> Uh, maybe I should maybe I should edit it to say yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. great. Put, That's a good suggestion. Put a Marvin. comma after you, you know Nell's LD PhD genius. <laughs> That's I mean you got to really fully <laughs> just really just, utilize just that. Hype it up. <laughs> yeah, go for it. Yeah. Well, that's super generous. First, you're now, you know, making me also super embarrassed. But I will say, you know, so that award, it's a massive honor, total surprise, everything else. It's actually a, an award for creativity, which in, in some senses, like, I, I don't want to, like, downplay the notion of genius, but I kind of do. And I want to lift up the notion of creativity. And so, like, actually, that I can't imagine, like, a more exciting honor than, like, people saying, like, we think you're creative. And that's sort of, I mean, that kind of hits the notes for me. Um, you know, I think what we're doing here today, Science on the Side podcast, this feels creative. Like we're sitting here kind of kicking around ideas in a way that maybe we didn't learn about when we were in our middle school science class or we were, you know, going through our college classes, our lab classes, even through graduate school. We've been, you know, I think a lot of our training is also almost like, you know, there's a lot to learn, keep your head down, do the experiments. And in some corners, it's even almost frowned on that we might even like just talk about stuff like that. We might podcast. That we it's might true. It out there, yeah. right? It's true. Yeah. And so what I think this creativity award says is, no, let's embrace this and let's see if we can connect in a bigger way and bring our work forward in these ways. And so that's the mandate I'm going to take from this is not <laughs> to sidestep the genius situation, but hope that we can sort of bring in some of this creativity. So, you know, I come from a family. I think I said in the MacArthur thing, I come from a yeah. family of scientists, artists, and ministers. And that's true. And so, you know, my mom was a, a middle school um, art teacher. My sister is a great artist. And um, I'm just trying to, you know, sort of bring some of that um, sort of fun, that experience um, to the science we do. And then I think, you know, the science part is kind of obvious if you run a lab, but then maybe less obvious or even in some cases uncomfortable is this what's the interface or the conflict between religion and science and for me like i've i've just sort of grown up this way with family members who are ministers and um you know in some cases i have a cousin who's a missionary who who builds um aquaponics farms in um thailand and so i've grown up with sort of these just different experiences and try to bring that together um, and not to say that there isn't real tension between science and religion, there can be, but there's also sort of interesting ways forward, I think, when you hold these things in together, but separately um, in your daily work and, and sort of bring these ideas differently. So that's maybe a short tour in creativity. Here. Very cool. Do you, do you dabble in art at all? Uh, <laughs> a little bit. Um, I do. So um, mostly, and I actually was on um, my own podcast um, this week in Evolution, we were talking Last time we interviewed this postdoc, uh, Alex Kagan, who's in the UK and does this really interesting work on somatic mutations, the mutations that happen just kind of everyday mutations in our cells um, of our body. And um, Alex is a, he's a great artist. Incredible illustrator. I, I, yeah, I listened, I was listening to that episode. I saw his website. It's so cool. Yeah. So check this out. Um, if you d haven't seen it already, he does these um, science sketches basically where he's at a, he's listening to a talk from a scientist and will on his iPad doodle kind of it's more than doodling that's not giving it enough credit he'll draw a portrait of the speaker and then um, you know in one page sort of some illustrations and some text that sort of summarizes or tries to capture the the main point there so we anyway we are he does this like uh, semi-professionally I would say um, we were talking though too about sort of the value of doodling so if I am like I'm actually I've got a little notebook here um, we're just podcasting together. But if this was on Zoom, I'd probably be just like frantically like sketching away or doodling away in this notebook. And so then I have these pages of just weird like bugs and creatures that show up. They're not like they're for myself. I'm not trying to put them out there, um, but it gets pretty wild. And I don't know that I, I don't know. Is that really art? I'm, it's never like I don't share it or anything <laughs> like that. But for me, it sort of helps my brain work somehow. And I'm thinking about scientific ideas. It's sort of Cause it creates some motion almost or unlock some things. So that's, that's maybe as close as I am to an artist. That's so interesting because when I go back, like and clean out old boxes from my parents' house, I'll find folders from high school and it's just nothing but little drawings all over it. I've always kind of been like that too. Just 
little stuff, stars, you know, just (laughs) doodling on things. That's very interesting. I love it. Yeah. It's a mess for like, you know, for lab notebook um, organization, (laughs) not so good. But there's something about this that um, I think is worth thinking about or pursuing a lot of scientist doodlers out there. I think the intersection between science and um, art is very intriguing to me. Uh, I've told this story on the podcast before, I think, but if I haven't, it's a great one and it's short. When you're in high school, you take these exams that kind of predict what you should be in life, you know, and all my friends were getting these scores that were telling them to be engineers and scientists and all these things. And mine came back that I would be an actor, a dancer, or a singer. Wow. And I was so disappointed, <laughs> so disappointed, you know. But when I, you know... As a scientist, I have to say the amount of creativity that I have to use is equal to the amount of like analytical power that I have to use. And I think any good scientist really has to be creative in how they think because you can do all the calculus equations in your brain. But if you can't think outside the box or push it forward a little bit, that's not going to amount to a hill of beans. That's just my opinion. I agree. You're preaching to the choir. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's what our job, right, is to make new knowledge or just to kind of envision new. That takes imagination. That yeah. Takes, and so it's tapping in to that. I mean, that sounds perfect to like that. Your, um, you know, your, your, your career test there. Like that's <laughs> like science. Yes. This is. Like, and, and I think we need to talk about this more because a lot of people wait for that, you know, if you're, t- you know, similar tests or even conversations or comments from teachers, we're looking for that sort of point us in the right direction kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes that, yeah, the idea that I'm an artist, I, that means I should be a scientist probably isn't like the first no. connection no. that we, is made. Nels, did you do science fair as a kid? <laughs> uh, I'm trying to remember. I definitely, you know, a few science projects. I'll say probably, um, not, but nothing super memorable or like, you know, that, yeah, um, pretty, pretty messy. I think actually where I did have as a kid growing up where I did have, I, mean, I was really lucky where I had, um, all kinds of exposures. So my father is a retired neuroscientist I and mean, he had a lab at the university of Minnesota. And so, um, it's not like I was in lab as a kid, like actually working like a junior graduate student or something like that. But, uh, the lab just had like all of the newest computers. So mm. like the, you know, new Macintosh would just come out and you could go in to the lab and hang out and play around while they were doing, I mean, they were like, there were rat brains and mouse brains, <laughs> like, you know, a few yards away, but I couldn't be bothered with that. I was just sort of playing around doing some doodling on these um, computers. And that was, you know, sort of maybe being pro- like just proximate. Somehow there was some osmosis here. Some of the science was <laughs> seeping over, but yeah, that's kind of my strongest memory from growing up is those sort of weekend evening lab experiences as opposed to the science fairs. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Did you do science fair, Ty? I remember one science fair. Yeah. Um, my project was seeing which light bulb would last the longest. <laughs> and so my dad, who was kind of an engineer, he built me this little thing that we could plug like multiple bulbs into. And we just plugged different companies, went and bought a bunch of different at the store, screwed them all in, turned it on, and then like checked on them every 12 hours or what it was, and then made a little graph of which company's light bulb lasted the longest. But uh, can I just... Did you have replicate values in there? No, (laughs) no, it was very rudimentary. (laughs) My parents... Yeah, but I'll tell you what. Uh, I did science fair judging, I think, for three years while I was in graduate school for like the K through 12 here, Salt Lake Mm -hmm. County, engineering, science. Man, there are some smart Mm. kids out there There with some smart parents who help them, can I just (laughs) say. But there were so many, and I think it's relative to the Salt Lake Valley, Mm. so many that were studying air quality. Mm. Interesting. And I thought that that was really cool, really neat. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Morgan? Science yeah. fairs? Yeah, yeah I've actually, the reason I brought this question up, I've been thinking about setting up an adult science fair oh, here wow. in, in Salt Lake for non-scientists to maybe redeem themselves from, <laughs> from uh, their childhood. Um, but it got me thinking about what I did for science fair growing up. And my first one was in fifth grade, and it was um, more of a social science question I had. It was called Supersize Me. Hmm. 
So I picked three menu items from McDonald's, and I took surveys among people to see what they thought had the most calories, um, to see how their perception of health influenced their choice if they were to order these menu items. And the reason why I did this is because I had seen that the salad on the McDonald's menu had more calories than the uh, Big Mac. Mm -hmm. And it surprised me. And so I just, I mean, there wasn't much to it. I really just went around to my neighbors and said, (laughs) which one do you think has the most calories? And then I did a small analysis on that. But um That was kind of my first introduction. And then Hmm. in high school, I did a science fair. And my question was whether um, expired antibiotics would still have some potency or if they would have lost potency um, after the expiration date. And, you know, I, I... this whole redemption thing is because I look back and I think that's such an interesting question and maybe really a good question. And I just had you know, no idea about all of the ways that I could actually ask that question and get a good answer um, that could actually have an impact. So I kind of just took expired antibiotics from my parents' medicine cabinet, (laughs) got some Petri dishes, kind of threw them on there. I took some swabs from doorknobs and different things in my houses to grow some bacteria. But there was very little control. You know, I I didn't control for variables. There are so many things that, like, I look back on. And I would just love to, like, work with non-scientists and adults and kind of teach them about those things and teach them this is why science is important and maybe make help people be a little bit more science literate through their own exploration. And I think that... I don't know. I just. Oh, Morgan, this is, I love this idea. So like uh, adult science fairs, you bring in, so I think, you know, it it collides two things. One is that just, you know, that kid, like we think when we think science fair, we think of being a kid. Mm -hmm. And so bringing back some of that sort of childlike energy, but as an adult, you could bring in some competition, right? This could be yep, kind of an event with like, you really want it to be good. But I, I think your idea here is a key one too, which is to team up our non scientist friends, community, family, whoever it is doing it with a scientist to, Mm -hmm. to sort of like, as you're saying, to check in and say, well, actually there's this thing called a control experiment. Why, you know, this is a cool idea, but how about adding this Mm -hmm. and that, what a cool way to sort of have a different level of one-on-one conversation as scientists and non-scientists. And we're always trying to crack this nut, which is as scientists, how do we connect or communicate to the greater public? Why not do it together in these sort of spurts and then make it fun with with the fair? Wow. That's a great idea. I hope you, you know, somehow you, you pull this off. Thank you. you I think you do too. I'll come back for this. You know, when we very first started graduate school, I had this idea of why doesn't the state of Utah have a statewide science symposium? So, Southern Utah, BYU, UVU, Utah, Utah State, Weber State, everybody come together, big symposium, speakers, poster session, little competition, sharing science from the different. I just thought that would be super cool. That would be cool. You know, like a statewide thing. I won't. I don't even know how you would begin to build that or get that off the ground or get funding for it. You know. Yeah. yeah. This is great. I mean, so Science Utah, right? Science so Utah. Like yeah. Organize it around the border of the state. That's there's an echo of that in Wisconsin. So the University of Wisconsin um, did, I think, some really good framing or almost you know PR, almost marketing years ago, which is to consider the So the um, you know University of Wisconsin Madison, the main campus to consider the, actually the uh, border of the campus as the border of the state. And it's an invitation both to people who are at the university that actually know your work here doesn't end inside of the classroom or in a few buildings in a laboratory, it extends to the border of the state. Same for the people outside of the university. This is a public university. This is your tax money. This is your people, this is your investment. And you should be welcome to show up to be part of that conversation and starting that dialogue in both directions. Your idea, Ty, goes even farther. It's like now let's talk about, so the University of Utah is a public institution, but let's bring in the other ones, the other public and even the private institution. Yeah. And have a bigger conversation and bring the public in. These ideas are are great and overdue and hopefully don't just, you know, sort of end at the um, – level of podcasting yeah Yeah, (laughs) if anybody's out there in utah (laughs) would know how to fund this (laughs) okay now uh 
Can you describe your beard to us? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are really going all over the yes, map here. Yes, yeah, so all over great. the map. Yep. Um, well, you know, uh, maybe like a science career, this beard career has also had its <laughs> ups and downs. So I remember like first, so I, I wear a, usually wear a full beard, although I will take it off from time to time. Um, I have seen that once. It's <laughs> funny that you say take it off. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. Or the, usually the analogy I use, it's like, um, you know, in ecology, you clear cut a forest and then allow the sort of the restoration. <laughs> sure, sort sure. Of a controlled burn. Yeah. Maybe is another way of describing it. Yep. Um, and I'll, so I'm going to start talking here, Mark, and answering your question, but I'm going to just stop me when you're, when you're done with me talking about this, because, um, this could go on for way too long if you're not careful here. So just either of you cut me off here, um, when need be. So no, you know, I think I started, um, dabbling in the kind of mysterious, um, realm of facial hair, uh, in college, early in college, and just had a really awful scraggly beard. I can remember one of my buddies who's on the football team, walking in the other direction on a path, looking at my sort of first attempt at facial hair and just laughing at me. And, <laughs> and so I trusted the process. I just let it go and it's kind of paid off. The follicles have come through as I've <laughs> gotten older. There's So what, <laughs> one funny story was actually when I, uh, about a year or so after I moved to Salt Lake, opened my lab here at the University of Utah, a friend pointed out there was a beard contest, a local coffee maker, coffee uh, roaster called Charming Beard Coffee was looking for, did a charming beard competition. <laughs> so um, I ended up, uh, the first step was kind of like grant competitions. It's like, these, you know, you go through different steps along the way to get sort of recognition or funding or whatever it is. Um, I sent in a photo of uh, drinking some coffee, holding a cat, I think, and with a beard. <laughs> I made it to the finals. So this was, um, there were five finalists. It was an in-person event. This is maybe 10 years ago, uh, nine years ago, eight or nine years ago. And it was sponsored by uh, one of the local brewers. There was like great free beer. There was um, a, a sausage maker. This guy called Frody was there baking. He had made bratwurst for the event. Beers, beards, and bratwurst was the That's awesome. Tag. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And so I didn't know what to expect. And the other four or five gentlemen like came with like pretty wildly good facial hair. Um, and then we were asked to give speeches, um, just sort of impromptu. Um, I made up something on the spot about, you know, being a scientist and the beard and sort of Mother Nature and Charles Darwin sort of come <laughs> weaving. To, I don't know what I said, but I won. I was named Mr. Charming Beard, uh, 2000, whatever, early teens. And um, I got free coffee for a year. I got all like all wow. these like, great things. But then, so, you know, this is early days of social media. And so I went on, I was kind of smug or proud of myself for this uh, quote unquote accomplishment. So I went on Facebook and I posted like, oh, I'm, I just won this beard contest and got a free year's supply of coffee. And immediately my mother got on Facebook and wrote in the comments, oh, that's funny because you don't drink coffee. And it was like, ah, mom, come on. This is my moment in the sun here. And it's a coffee roaster that gave me this award. You're like, yeah, don't don't spoil the fun here for everyone. Right. You're exposing me as a fraud. So anyway, that's one of my beard stories. I also ran for a while um, in grad starting in grad school, um, a facial hair related um, day called National Laboratory Mustache Day. Um, I'm not going to go into the weeds on this one, um, except to say maybe a few of these echoes of like not taking ourselves so seriously in the lab and just having some fun. Um, this was the Friday before Valentine's Day. We named National Lab Mustache Dates. Kind of faded, I would say, in recent years, but there's still <laughs> a few pockets of celebrators. So the idea is to celebrate the mustache in the laboratory setting, not just the gentlemen, everyone. Um, there's some kind of um, spur some interesting conversations, actually, but um, that was another sort of facial hair related story. I'm going to, but I'm going to stop Morgan because otherwise <laughs> we could talk about this all day. That's right. I could all day. <laughs> yeah. I have a, just a question yeah. and yeah, we yeah. didn't really intro you, but you did yeah. your bachelor's degree at Carleton Car college That's in right. Minnesota. Yeah. Uh, and then you did a PhD at the university of Chicago. What was that in? Was it genetics? It was. So it was, uh, the department's called molecular genetics and cell biology. Um, this is at the university of Chicago. It was really, interested at that step in my career 
in model genetic systems. So these like the small set of animals or creatures that have been brought into the laboratory that geneticists have brought to the laboratory for the last 50 to 100 years. Um, and so the um, critter that I was working with that I ended up doing my PhD on is um, not quite as popular as, say, the mouse or the worm or the fly. It's a critter called Tetrahymena thermophila. Um, this is a cousin of Paramecium that we probably saw in our high school classroom. And the wild thing about this ciliate, this cousin of Paramecium, is it has this complex, it's a single cell, and it ha but it has this complex cell biology, these, these cellular structures, these vesicles, these compartments that look a lot like some of our cells. Actually, for example, the cells that we have that um, are in, in our pancreas that secrete um, insulin as we eat food that for some reason, probably because of, it turns out, predator-prey interactions, a lot of these ciliates like tetrahymena and paramecium build similar compartments. They're not secreting insulin after a meal, but they're secreting proteins that are involved in predator-prey relationships. And Interesting. So that's what I was studying, yeah, was sort of how does that work at the genetic level. Okay. And so... You know, I thought I was using this. The reason we call these model systems is because we think the biology sort of reflects our own biology. And by studying these things that live in ponds, we might learn something about how our own biology works. The sort of curveball here in my PhD, my thesis, was these the biology that looked the same was actually there was different genetics here. There were different genes um, that were, or the same genes that were independently recruited to some of these same jobs. And so this was sort of like uh, actually kind of a, a, a challenge to the notion of model systems. If the system you're working on has solved this problem or does this biology in a different way than we do, then is it really that such a good model after all? I think the answer is yes, but it's, a, it's kind of it reframes the question. And so that's as I was thinking about what do I want to do for a postdoc, I was trying to think, okay, what it, you know, how do we think about these model systems and, or the relationship between the things we study and our own biology? So then you go on to the Fred Hutch Cancer Center. Yeah, that's right. And so, yeah, I did a postdoc there where I was It really the kind of key, I think, advance was to break away from those really deep um, roots in the tree of life that billion years ago, that common ancestor, and to move out to the very tips of the branches of the tree of life, which is, you know, what happened last week, last <laughs> month, last year with the last pandemic or a pandemic that happened a million years ago. And so that's kind of what got me on to this, um, as we kind of discussed a little bit, this idea of the interactions between viruses, bacteria, and us, and then how that influences the evolution of immune systems over longer time periods. Were there moments that you can remember in your training, whether that's your PhD or your um, postdoc, or even going back to your um, undergraduate career? Yeah that were just like, you know, just a, a single day that stands out to you as either an incredible day mm. that that you remember and cherish or maybe like the hardest day of your career. <laughs> you know, I, I just, I want to see what a couple experiences maybe that shaped you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think it's the, you know, it's the negative ones that really sort of stick <laughs> into your <laughs> yeah. memory yep. banks here. So I'll give, I'll, yeah, I'll do one from grad school. Um, I was setting up some Western blots, and this is, um, you know, the kind of before the precast gel era. So we would um, pour our own gel, acrylamide gels. And um, this, uh, there's two memories now. This is unlocking another memory. I'll do the grad school one, and then there's an undergrad memory here too. So um, now you just go and order, you know, or go to the, like, a freezer or a refrigerator, and you just pull out your percentage gel, run your proteins, and you're good. I still pour my gels. All right. <laughs> Glad to hear it. We have some old school science here. Yeah. So I was pouring my own gels, and in doing that, um, there was a little refrigerator under the bench top. And I think there was, um, you know, a reagent I needed to polymerize the gel in the back of the refrigerator. And in doing that, I knocked uh, a... a Pretty decent sized bottle of beta mercaptor ethanol oh. um, onto the gr onto the tile floor, and it just it was glass, and so it burst open. And oh. Beta mercapto has this rotten, really strong rotten egg smell, and when you have like three hundred mils of it now just seeping across the floor, I mean this is like potentially like evacuate the building sort right. of situation. That's a lot. I mean, uh, just to comment on that, it, when I do like tissue culture work in a hood. And I just take the lid off of one of those things. The whole room will smell like that for an hour or two. Like, yeah. it, it's potent. Yeah. So there's like that smell memory that makes it even probably even a deeper 
memory there. But this was like overwhelming. Like this was in not just the hood, but the or not just the lab, but the floor. And so um, we actually there's a biochemist, Ted Steck, who I think is now retired, who said, oh, we should just pour hydrogen peroxide on it. And it worked. So really? Yeah. So, you know, the, this is like a reducing agent. So you get the hydrogen peroxide, you neutralize the whole thing. It still smelled awful, but this was like a way forward. Um, and I think in today, this is like 20 years ago plus. So, you know, in today's um, day and age, you'd probably have EHS there and you would just <laughs> like get out. And But we were sort of in the game trying to clean it up. I think I had a pretty bad headache for like two days after that. Oh, and, man. You know, maybe my lifespan is shortened by five <laughs> years. But so anyway, that's one of them. There are a lot of mistakes. Uh, these are the things that stick in your mind. Another one is actually, so pouring these gels, right? You make acrylamide gel, you have to polymerize it. And as an undergrad, uh, not for protein gels, not for Western blots, but for sequencing gels, we were pouring these massive acrylamide gels um, with shark's tooth comb so that you could run your um, DNA samples and then see uh, as the bands came out, this is how you used to sequence DNA and it would take like three days to get 200 base pairs or something like that. So anyway, I was trying to pour these gels and I kept doing it again and again. I'd polymerize, it was working, but the it would never, it would get a little bit viscous. It would get a little bit like a gel substance, but it wouldn't freeze. It would just, it was still liquid. And it turned out I forgot to add the cross-linking agent, bisacrylamide, and it took me like three weeks to figure that out. But once I figured, like after that frustration and the troubleshooting, I will never make that mistake again. And that's, yeah, and so it's those, actually those negative experiences that somehow stick with you, and then you learn from those, and sort of, you know, in a sense, that's sort of like the one at the opposite side of the coin of the things we publish, the grants we get, or the awards, or whatever, is actually all of these, you know, sort of mistakes or bad memories that sort of actually kind of move science forward somehow. Cool. And you had a really cool discovery about molecular mimicry, which I've always thought was really interesting <laughs> from an uh, immunological perspective. It was a nature paper. Mm -hmm. I'm getting to my question here. Yeah. You, I assume, probably had a lot of um, options or interviews looking for uh, places to go. How'd you end up at Utah? <laughs> and, and what made you choose Utah? Yeah. Okay, I'll answer that. I'm going to save that big question, but maybe get there through some of the work. And so, yeah, so this idea of molecular mimicry. And I was, um, I mean, one of the really fun things about evolution, right, is um, there's this kind of like storied history that like the Charles Darwin, all the, you know, the those days and these voyages on ships to South America and sort of like figuring out the origin of the species, all these things. There was another scientist there, um, uh, Bates, who, and we still say his name when we talk about Batesian mimicry. And so this was actually, you know, a kind of contemporary of Darwin, who was just looking at butterflies in this case. So this is no, this isn't cell biology or molecular biology, just um, field biology, and noticing that there, you know, some of the patterns, the wing patterns on the butterflies were actually, um, in some cases, re re reflected mimicry. So there were poisonous species of butterflies that are trying again a lot of. Evolution comes down to predator-prey situations. So birds might be eating these butterflies, but they learn very quickly this is poisonous. It's not a good meal. There are mimics that then don't encode that poison, which is actually there's probably an evolutionary advantage to not having to create that poison or be subject to it. But their wing pattern matches that. And so they, by mimicking that poisonous butterfly, they now enjoy the protection because the birds have learned don't their pattern is dangerous. Stay away from it. So that kind of thing is happening not just in the rainforest or among the butterflies, but I think at every layer of biological organization, kind of down all the way to the viruses. And so it's not an exact one-to-one -one comparison, but a lot of these um, viruses are sort of fascinating. They're gene thieves. So they steal, they, they sample the genes in, as they're infecting our cells and have access or like literally kind of seeing the, our own genomes. But there's a process of horizontal gene transfer where viruses might gain some of these genes from their hosts. And so that was kind of one of the big ideas that we put out um, in my postdoc in that paper that you mentioned, Ty. So um, it worked. So it was like, you know, kind of a high profile uh, publication, got some excitement. And so then, yeah, I was, you know, a few years in, it was like, OK, time to think about opening up a lab. Um, and, you know, to be honest with you, I was pretty ambivalent about, like, do I really want to open a lab? Especially when I was starting my postdoc, I was 
Um, you know, getting a PhD is tough. You can speak to this. Uh, you you yeah. both can speak yes. to this. There's some ups and downs. And um, it's pretty exhausting. And then, you know, at the end, they make you, like, do all this weird formatting of your thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, really? Like, can we just do, like, five years of hard work? So anyway, so, you know, yeah, there were a few options. And so why Utah? And that was – I applied to Utah kind of the last application that went in. Um, I had some mentors from undergrad from um, Carleton who had pointed out what an interesting place Utah is. It's sort of, you know, compared to some of the big research universities, it's relatively small, mm -hmm. but it's also really science rich. There's just all kinds of really cool science going on. And, um, and people want to talk about it and work together and sort of collaborate and compare. And so, yeah, I was kind of knocked away when I saw Utah for the same time, saw Salt Lake City for the first time. Um, I think the kind of um, almost seamlessness between the wilderness and work was really kind of captured me being able to, you know, get start a lab, but like do a micro hike during lunch, just, you know, up into the foothills sure. here in the Wasatch Mountains. Yeah, I think that brings a lot of people here to Utah. We Absolutely. just have incredible um, opportunities Access. to be in nature. Yeah. 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 So the science outdoors um, and just a number of things all worked together. Um, the city, uh, you know, an interesting growing city, there were coffee roasting companies named after beards and they would have, a, <laughs> I mean, it was just like kind of one thing after another. Um, so yeah, that whole combo of sort of it's Utah, Salt Lake is a great place for a scientific life, I would yeah. say. I often tend to think of, well, at least frame schools amongst their, um, uh, sports conferences, <laughs> yep. because these tend to be major schools with very high impact academic uh, prowess. And I think us being now in the Pac-12 has elevated us. So I'm just kind of curious. I mean, you think about the University of Washington's, the Stanford's, the Berkeley's, the USC's, the UCLA's. I think we absolutely belong there. But <laughs> what do you think we can do or do you think we ever will creep up into that area of like the University of Washington? Or do you think we're always going to kind of be a mid-tier, you know, Arizona State type of school, you know? You're talking about for science. Now. I'm talking about for science. Okay. Yeah. You can talk about sports, too. I'm totally into that. Oh, as well. I'm yeah. way into sports. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but let's not get derailed. Oh, that's, a <laughs> that's a different podcast. So, yeah, I like the analogy, though. Conceptually, there's something about being the underdog in science, which I think is really powerful. Actually. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And so... You know, I want to be at a place like Utah where people might like the first thing that doesn't come to mind, you know, so in, in our field in molecular biology or cell biology genetics, um, you know, so the Berkeleys and the Stanford's and the Washington's might sort of first come to mind. But when something cool comes up at Utah, you can kind of surprise people and say, you know, and sort of capture their attention in a way that it might almost be, oh, well, you're at Berkeley. I expected that sure. you would come up with something <laughs> cool. I love that positioning. I love that energy. That's where this underdog status or this this is like being in the Mountain West is perfect for science because we've got a lot of elbow room, yeah. literally and figuratively, yeah. scientifically. And so I think that's sort of one of the big advantages here. And and, you know, so the, actually the danger is you're too successful, that now this builds into if this just becomes sort of Berkeley Light or Rockefeller Jr. or something, if that's what you're, you know, you're striving for, you think, that, you know, this is sort of the pinnacle to get to. Well, you've sort of given, you've traded off all yeah. of those great things. Yes. And so that's one of the, you know, that's one of the challenges here is like we could actually be a victim of our success. And so mm -hmm. sort of, you know, there are some other uh, good things at play that I think keep the lid on a little bit, actually, um, and allow science to keep bubbling up as the underdog in different ways. So that's kind of my hope is to sort of balance those things yeah, as well. What do you think the next revolution of science <laughs> is? Oh, that's another tough one. Um, so I think the revolutions are probably going to happen in um, kind of stepping away from where I was as a grad student So and as an undergrad. So I was thinking, you know, let's look at these this small set half a dozen or a dozen species that we've domesticated in the laboratory, built all these tools. It's hard-fought battles for model systems over decades. And I think what's happening now, um, kind of in, in a lot of places in, in the field of evolution, is people are, like, recognizing the power of that, but also that it's really artificial. We've domestic like, just in that process of bringing things into the lab, simplifying, you know, what it meant to be a virologist 30 years ago might be that not only did you study one virus, but you studied one gene that encodes one protein in that virus. And that was your sort of lane that you were in. 
And now we're, I think, you know, in really exciting ways, we're all like saying, wait a minute, what about all of that real life biological complexity out there where it's not just one virus, but it's many and there's a microbiome and there's all of these interactions and interfaces, all these collisions. And how do we capture that, but still not just observe it, but manipulate it or learn about it. And so, you know, kind of the confluence of the technologies, genomics, with the ability um, to manipulate genomes, some of the CRISPR-based systems, other technologies that are sure to bubble up that allow us to sort of take, uh, get a little, get closer to nature, but with that sort of laboratory view of mm -hmm. experimentation, manipulation. And I think that's gonna be a revolution is the farther that we can bring these th two things together, sort of real biological complexity with the tools to study it and understand it at a, at, at a new level, not just catalog it. I've got a couple more questions. Yeah, hit it. If you do, you can add them in. But what fills your time when you're not doing science? Oof, a lot of things. I have a two-year-old toddler now. Okay. And so that's probably the main thing yeah. um, currently. Um, that's definitely been a life changer in great and complicating ways. Mm -hmm. um, and then, um, but all, yeah, I mean, so living in Utah, being outdoors and doing these kind of things, gardening, actually, I'm a beekeeper as oh, well. Awesome. So yeah, I've, I like to keep, pet, I like to supervise pets. So I've got currently, I mean, the toddler is probably the closest to a, a, <laughs> a, the only mammal under my supervision, but um, I keep a lot of fish, 30 gallon aquarium at home. I've got a 400 gallon pond in my backyard. Wow. And so I just like being around living things and sort of interacting with them, whether it's plants or animals. And so that's kind of how I organize my that's awesome. quote unquote free time. Very cool. cool. Very, Very cool. cool. Yeah. Thank you so much, Nels. We really appreciate having you on here. Yeah, no, I just want to say my time here, I've always loved hearing you talk. Uh, I know you taught like a section of my human genetics class, and I've heard you talk at some symposiums. Just always appreciated what you had to say. I think your research was really cool. Um, and uh, yeah, I look forward to what comes from your lab next. Thank you so much, Ty and Morgan. This is so much fun. And I'm just thrilled that you two are podcasting. Science on the side. Um, I started my own podcast about five years ago. And so, you know, to see this happening, like, in well, just the creativity here, I, I can't get enough of it. And we appreciate it. Uh, next, next podcast episode, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to do a review of Ty's thesis defense. That's right. That's right. So stay tuned because you'll get to see some snippets and we'll probably do a little roasting of my <laughs> of my thesis defense. Yeah. It should be a good time. We, we're going to uh, have a little bit of video, which is something we haven't done before. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get some video. We're going to have a good time. Yeah. It'll be great. I'll count me in. I'll tune in for that one. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for listening. Yeah. See you guys later. <laughs>